Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything to do with the world of music, and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Kibbe, I'm a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and now apparently a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within arguably the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free, that's right, for free at scottcowie.com. That was the words of Neil Armstrong on the 20th of July 1969 when he became the first man to walk on the moon. Now, why are you talking about the moon, Scott? I hear you scream. It's the Talk Music Podcast. Well, in the intro, it states that occasionally we'll go off topic and this is one of those occasions. i tell you the reason why, folks. Just please bear with me here. I'm kind of fascinated by the whole moon thing, space, Mars, everything that the, the NASA guys have got going on. Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins and Buzz Aldrin, the first people to walk on the moon. A whole host of documentaries, films have been made about this thing since. Our producer Ron is with us right now. How are you, Ron? I'm good. Are you interested in this, much like I am? Does it, does it sustain your interest, all this kind of stuff? To an extent. To an extent? Not, not as much as I... Well, I tell you what, I became fascinated to the point where I called up NASA. I'm not even joking. I called up NASA and I said, I want to speak to the head spokesman. We have already had on this podcast, episode one, Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols. Episode two, Hugh Morgan from the Fun Loving Criminals. Episode three, our pal Sandy Tom. Episode four, Brian Ray, who plays guitar with Paul McCartney, Etta James, Smokey Robinson, the list goes on. Episode five, of course, Orianthe plays guitar with Michael Jackson. All those episodes of the podcast are worth checking out. www.scottcowie.com. Click on podcast. Oh, www.scottcowie.com forward slash podcast. Either way works. But let me get back to NASA. I called the guys up. I asked to speak to Mr. Bob Jacobs, the head spokesman. And he said, yeah, I want to get on the top music podcast with Scott Cowie. Isn't that fascinating? I can imagine a massive table full of people talking about how they're going to get a guy on Mars and the head spokesman turns around and goes like that. I need to go away right now because I've got Cowie on the phone. We need to talk. I need to be on this top music podcast show. Brilliant. Right, normally we have a song to start, but I'm going to, you know, Ron, I mean, the, the demand has been unreal. People have been emailing, people have been tweeting me in, people have been Facebooking me, people have been uh, getting in touch with me through Morse code, people have been reactivating their Bebo accounts and they've been messaging me and they've been saying the same thing. Scott, when are you going to perform one of your songs on the Talk Music podcast? The, the demand's been unreal, Ron, hasn't it? I mean, I can't say I've seen it. Um, they are very... Yeah, 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 there's been a lot, there's been a lot, it's probably, there's been so much that it's been clogging up the system, so I'm going to start off uh, with a little song, it's a new song, it goes out to all the lovers out there, um, if you're a lover, or if you're, um, maybe, you know, if, if there's somebody that you really like and you want to tell them how you feel, just, um, just do it, that's my, um, that's my advice, and I hope you like this one, um, and it will be available soon at scottkibbe.com. So you're going to hear a song from me, and we're going to be right back on the Top Music Podcast with the interview with the head spokesman of NASA, Mr. Bob Jacobs. Here we go. And I'm talking when I'm doing this to show that this is completely 100% live. 
My girlfriend means the world to me. She's not the best looking, but that don't mean Jack, you see. To be honest, she is disgusting. She looks like a rancid pig. It's just as well, my girlfriend is imaginary. I call her Mary. Imaginary Mary. My friends say it was down to your imagination. Can you not imagine someone nicer than imaginary Mary? She's five stone overweight. She's violently racist. She ruined Sanjay's wedding, but that's imaginary Mary. One day we will have a imaginary children. And one day we will have a imaginary children and pay off our imaginary mortgage. My mom says, I'm worried about you. You're 30 years old, you got no job and an imaginary lover. It's a relationship you can refuse. You don't need this domestic abuse. But I can't stop you, son, from loving imaginary Mary. And one day, We'll have a imaginary children. One day we will have a imaginary children and pay off our imaginary nationwide mortgage. Oh, oh yeah. So I moved on from this so-called relationship. Last week I went on a dinner date with an actual real person. I took her back to my apartment. My confidence restored. As she freshened up in the bathroom, imaginary Mary burst in the door. She attacked me with a lampshade, but I defended and stood my height. But you can't hide true feelings And when she's angry, she's quite a sight My date re-entered the room And to her devastation I was making sweet love to a 17 stone figment of my imagination Yeah One day we will have a imaginary Children, one day we will have a imaginary children and pay off our imaginary nationwide high interest mortgage.
do yeah 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 i'm with bob jacobs from nasa right now how are you doing bob doing well doing well how are things with you things are okay in this uh, dismal day in scotland okay so we're here to talk about the entire podcast is about neil armstrong it's about nasa it's about everything related to that now my first question is first of all how well did you know mr armstrong uh, I knew him for about 10 years. Uh, we met uh, in late 2003 at an event in Houston. Mm-hmm. And at the time, uh, the president, uh, President Bush at the time, had just announced uh, uh, a new vision for space exploration. And, and uh, at this event, Neil had said some good things about it. So it struck me that we might be able to uh, collaborate on a video presentation. And uh, I waited in line, half as a fanboy, uh, couldn't believe that I was about to meet this person, and half as a, you know, a NASA exec- executive who has to work on a project. And uh, introduced myself at that event, and uh, you know, we struck up. Uh, you know, it, it, it's tough even today with with Neil's friends. I'm not sure if it's a friendship or or uh, an acquaintance, but uh, we worked together on a number of projects over over the past decade. Fantastic stuff. Now, if you can, can you give an explanation to your um, role with NASA on a day-to-day basis? Sure. Uh, The official title is Deputy Associate Administrator for Communications, which is a long government way of saying that I'm uh, the ranking civil servant for communications at NASA, spanning everything from NASA television programming to news and information that we distribute to uh, supporting documentaries and, uh, and major motion pictures. That sounds very, very interesting indeed. Now, I'm keen to know, you mentioned the term fanboy, and you mentioned meeting Neil Armstrong for the first time. Were you like what we're like over here? You've watched that footage time and time again. I've got one question. The line, it's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Do you think that was a pre-planned line, or do you think that was spontaneous? I'm keen to know your reaction. Well, I, you know, and I've been fortunate to, act, to have asked him about that uh, in the past uh, when the, there was a controversy a number of years ago uh, about whether or not he had the, added the a, one small step for a man uh, because it was always quoted as one small step for man. And Neil himself said that, that he said A, or he thought he said A. He had meant to say A. In fact, there was a, an audio uh, expert who claims to have found the A hidden in the, the signal uh, of that. So that was always, you know, that, that's always been a, a thing because, you know, the public kind of assumes it was one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But since, you know, he was the one who took the step, he was the one who says that he said A, so for NASA, uh, officially, we, and if nothing else, use it parenthetically in the quotes. One small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And and he, you know, he, he says that he thought, you know, it, it was kind of in between. He didn't have it written out or planned out, but he had been giving thought to what would he say because of, you know, the gravity, not a bad pun there, uh, but, the, you know, the, 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 the historic significance of what he was doing. So I think it was a little bit of both. I think part of it was 
was extemporaneous, but I think he'd been giving it a lot of thought. Really, really interesting. Very interesting indeed. And it's it's really good that you got that opportunity to ask him that question. And that was in your mind as well. Now, the Apollo mission in 1969, it's become very, very famous, of course. I'm interested to know what was NASA's selection process for the astronauts who would eventually take part in the mission, of course, be Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. Can you talk to us about a little bit about that? Well, Neil and and a couple of the others there, they were part of the second class of astronauts. Uh, everyone remembers the Mercury 7 uh, astronauts. That was the first class selected in 1959. And when NASA was going forward with what was going to be the Apollo program, it knew that it would need you know more astronauts. Uh, so it went out and advertised for a, a second class of astronauts uh, who were selected in 1962. And Neil was part of that class. Uh, and before that, you know, Neil had, had positioned himself, he was a former military pilot, and he was actually a, a test pilot for the predecessor of what would become NASA. It was NACA, it was dedicated to aeronautics research. And uh, so Neil was actually a part of the agency uh, even before the agency existed. So he was always there. But uh, I think, uh, you know, and, and if you read, uh, you know, historic claims uh, at that time, that he was excited about the prospect of what the Apollo program was going to do, so he applied for and was selected as as an astronaut. Interesting stuff again. Now, you said you knew Neil Armstrong for a period of 10 years. Now, there's been so much written about this. I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that that's why we wanted to get you on today. There's a lot of what I perceive as misinformation, particularly on the internet. Um, Neil Armstrong, he didn't take part in a lot of interviews. Was that a conscious decision? Was he naturally very quiet? You knew him well. What's your answer? You know, and again, I guess it's the former reporter coming out. I, the, the first time we worked together, I asked him that. And, uh, and, and, and his response was he, he, he didn't understand why people thought that, that he was a recluse because he did uh, lots of public events. He traveled a lot, spoke publicly a lot, but he did say that he wasn't fond of extemporaneous interviews. Uh, and the reason being, and, and he said it was simple, it was like, you know, I'm getting older, I worry about my memory. Uh, and and I and, and I, I don't want to get it wrong. I, I don't want to misname someone or somehow miss some important fact of it. So I just prefer not to do them. And that's how it worked. I mean, in the in the ten years that that I knew him, I only know of two uh, extemporaneous interviews that he did. Uh, one was for sixty minutes uh, when his biography came out by former NASA historian Jim Hansen. Uh, he did an interview with Ed Bradley. And another one was shortly before he died, he did a, an extemporaneous interview in Australia uh, where, it, you know, it, it was a, 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 a frank Q&A. Now, he, he did appear uh, before Congress a few times and would answer congressional questions and that sort of thing. But he wasn't one who, you know, he, 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 it, he never made it about him. It was always about the effort. You know, he, he was the face of what the Apollo program was for Apollo 11 uh, as a commander, but there were, you know, in his mind, hundreds of thousands of other people who contributed to making that mission a success. So he never wanted to be the one who was seen in, as being out there. But but he did lots of public events. He, he spoke to engineers. He spoke to, to students. 
and and it was just one of those things that the only thing he didn't like doing was uh, sitting down for a Q&A session like this. Good points I think you're making there because looking back on it, it's starting to make sense. There's so many people that have got so many rigorous questions regarding... Well, that mission, I suppose, in 1969. So I can understand, particularly as you mentioned there, as Neil Armstrong's getting older, he's reluctant to take part in these interviews because you see a lot of documentaries that are a little bit negative about the moon. I mean, there's some people that question whether it even took place or not. So I suppose he's reluctant to perhaps stem from that as well. Well, I, you know, I don't think that now, you know, remember his crewmate, uh, Buzz Aldrin, actually punched one of the uh, moon conspiracy theorists uh, back when uh, this particular one was, was pushing his agenda. He was going around with a Bible uh, to public events where Apollo astronauts were speaking and asking them to swear on this Bible that, that the moon landings were real. And Buzz slugged him. Uh, I've seen that video footage on YouTube. It's um, He's got quite a punch, hasn't he? For a man that was in his late 70s at the time. Were you impressed with that punch? Well, I mean, you, you know, these guys are former military, they're former fighter pilots. I, no, you don't, you, don't want to, you don't want to screw with them. Absolutely, because I think that if I'd risked, I mean, I suppose it goes without saying, if you'd risked your life and went to that extent, if you'd spent years and years of training and eventually reached the top as far as, you know, astronomy is concerned, getting that opportunity and somebody comes up and questions whether you not whether or not you actually risked your life and went to the moon, it'd be very, very upsetting. And you mentioned the Bible thing there, and that was Bart Sebro, right, that um, approached them with the Bible, and none of them would do it. But I think there was just a, I think they just, uh, they felt that the nerve of this guy and their estimations, it was it was out of order. Yeah, and, you know, and, and you know, whether or not we went to the moon was, you know, you could justify with eighth grade science, uh, you know, but conspiracy theories are fun. Uh, people orbit around them, pun intended, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know. But it's not, it, but it's something that if you get down to it, I mean, you know, there were so many people who were working on the program. We were embroiled in such a a a you know worldwide political battle, you know, tri- in the middle of the Cold War with the Soviet Union over getting to the moon. That if you know if we could fake it, and if you know if there was any. You know, you can't do anything without someone knowing about it. You know, how did how does someone keep that secret for fifty years? And and why why wouldn't the Russians expose us? Or you know, all all these things that could have happened. You know, uh, a funny project that we were happy to help support was you know one of the popular shows here is MythBusters. Yeah, yeah. And and they did a you know did we really land on the moon as one of their uh, series premieres uh, several years ago. And, that, you know, so it's, it's fun to have, you know, you can have some fun with it. I, you know, I, I don't think, you know, depending on the astronaut you ask, some don't take it seriously, but some consider it, you know, an insult to the, the hundreds of thousands of people who worked on the program and, and those who died. Uh, you know, not the least of which were the Apollo 1 astronauts who were killed in the capsule fire in 1967. Let's take take us back a little bit. You mentioned the Soviet Union, the 1950s. Am I right in saying they were a little bit ahead over a period of time? Would, did they do a couple of things to, to get ahead of, of, of America's mission to land on the moon? I mean, can you take us back to that period? Oh, sure. Well, I think the, uh, you know, the, the Russians were first to put a satellite in space with Sputnik. Uh, they were the first to get not only 
uh, a human in, in space, but a human in orbit uh, at that time because it wasn't seen as a national priority. And, and because of the, the political nature of the time, I think that you saw a reaction from the United States of making a commitment to not only match but better what the, the, the Russians, the Soviets then, the Russians were doing at that time. So you had Yuri Gagarin orbiting. So even, even when we launched uh, Alan Shepard as the first American into space, it was a suborbital flight. It was a flight that lasted uh, about 16 minutes because we didn't have enough confidence in the, in the rocket technology at the time to risk an orbital flight. Uh, but that's what, uh, when John Glenn flew in 1962, that was one of the things that kind of put the United States more on an even keel with what the Russians were doing because we finally had an American in orbit. Great stuff. Great stuff. We're going to cut now. A lot of our listeners that knew you were coming on, uh, particularly uh, a listener called Huey Morgan, uh, Huey's asking, do you think dark matter has any play in how NASA built spaceships nowadays? How NASA builds spaceships nowadays? Uh, what's your theory on that? Well, I think dark matter has more to do with how we develop the sensor technology and the spacecraft to study it. Uh, it, it's not in, you know, it's not really to the point that it's involved, you know, it, 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 it plays a role in our development of space, in, in human spacecraft, but certainly in our, our, our efforts to better understand it, uh, we have, you know, continuing development in all of our deep space observatories. And, uh, so yeah, it plays a role. Uh, I just want to make sure that it, it's, it's not necessarily in a human space flight role, but in our space science study. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Curiosity. If you can, can you give us a little summary of what Curiosity is? I would make an attempt and fail miserably to <laughs> to justify what it's doing. Can you do so for us just now? Well, and again, think about you know, what Curiosity is. It's about a one-ton piece of hardware. It's about the size of a, a small car or a small SUV. Uh, that we landed on Mars, and Curiosity is studying the red planet, not in a search for life, but, you know, it's part of NASA's long-term goal in, in uh, following the water and examining whether or not Mars could have, at one point in history, supported life. And that's really what it is doing. You know, interestingly enough, we're, we're today on the 10th anniversary of the landing of the rover Spirit, uh, remember, 10 years ago, uh, the rover Spirit and the rover Opportunity, uh, which would land on Mars two weeks later, uh, landed on the red planet. And, uh, of course, Spirit uh, stopped working some time ago, but Opportunity is still roving Mars as well, 10 years later. And, you know, this was a mission that was supposed to last 90 days. And here we are 10 years later talking about the discoveries that Opportunity is making. So we're looking uh, and, and still get a lot of the same same science data and are expecting big things out of curiosity uh, because it's, its life is supposed to be at least a decade uh, because it's powered differently than, than opportunity is. So, uh, but curiosity is, has been a, uh, 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 an incredible success story both in terms of engineering, in terms of return on science, in terms of public engagement and getting people excited about space travel and space exploration. It's just an incredible mission. 
I'm a little bit green with curiosity reporting back. What is that doing? Does it give a, is it every week that it's, that it's sending pictures? Are you getting that every minute that it's doing so? How is that working? Well, there are, there are, uh, there's a satellite in orbit around Mars that acts as a distribution station. A Curiosity itself can send uh, direct data to Earth, uh, you know, when the planets are in the right position and, and, and what have you. But it generally relies on and it gets more data transferred by dumping the information that it has on the rover to the satellite that we have in orbit that is then beamed back to Earth. So it's kind of a, a two-step process. Uh, but it still uses traditional, uh, for lack of a better term, radio communication. So it can take, you know, 17 to 22 minutes to get data and commands back and forth. Right. You know, one of the things that we just tested is laser communications, where it's much faster and you can get much bigger data loads. Uh, and we tested it with a, a, a lunar orbiter called LADEE. And I think that's the wave of communica space communications in the future. But at any rate, to, to answer your question specifically, it, it, it can beam directly to Earth, but often it relies on satellite orbiting Mars to get that information to it. It's been a, over a year of success now, but I want you to take us back to this August 6, 2012, the day Curiosity landed on Mars. The whole thing is available to see on YouTube, extraordinary scenes. Can you talk us through that day? What was your role? What was the vibe like? I mean, you're, we're getting a little bit from YouTube, but you were right at the heart of it. Talk us through it. You know, one of the things that struck me as we entered the, the landing sequence, you know, of course, all that's automated. We're not controlling anything. It was all based on the programmers at, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California. All this work had been done ahead of time. So in many ways, we were just viewers of what was happening. And the thing that struck me was as the entry sequence, you know, the, there was a popular video, uh, Seven Minutes of Terror, uh, that's on YouTube and other places that talks about the landing sequence. And it struck me when we started getting the data back from what was happening at the beginning of the landing sequence, it was already over. I mean, whatever had happened had already happened. It's just we're waiting for that communication lag, that time to get this data. So that was the first thing that struck me was that no matter what happens here, it's already happened. It's history. You know, we're, we're having to wait for those radio waves and those signals to get back. But it was just this step-by-step -step process. And, and, you know, NASA does everything live, you know, good, good and bad. Uh, you know, so we were hearing the calls uh, from uh, the people in JPL's mission control as each milestone was met. And, and people were getting that much more excited and that much more excited. And then, of course, when they got the confirmation that the rover was safely on Mars, you know, the place erupted, you know, just just with this explosive relief and excitement. So it, it was an amazing time. Great. And again, if you haven't seen it, folks, check it out. Go on YouTube. As Bob explains there, heroic scenes on the day of the... August 6, 2012, and let's just hope the rest of Curiosity's journey is a big success as the first year and a half has been. Can you talk to us a little bit of the projects that we maybe don't know about so much? I mean, Curiosity, it's been in the news quite frequently here in the United Kingdom. What other projects have NASA got going on just now that you could maybe talk to us a little bit about? Well, you know, one of the things that, that, that I worry gets lost in, in the discussion about space exploration is the International Space Station. I mean, since November 
of 2001, you know, we haven't known a time when there weren't Americans in orbit. You know, we have we have had humans in space continually now. I mean, think about a, a child who was born at that time. Now we have, you know, students in school who will have never known a time when people weren't living in space. So people kind of forget about the International Space Station. And it's up there. It's orbiting at 17,500 miles per hour. It's as large as a five-bedroom house. It has almost an acre of solar panels. It is a closed green system. It recycles all of its water. I mean, it, it's an engineering marvel, and it's this amazing laboratory that is designed to do the kind of research that can't be done here on the ground. So, I, I you know, I, while we look to the future, I, I, I worry that we don't forget about the now. And, and remind people that we've got this incredible international collaborative project up in space with six astronauts, mixture of astronauts and cosmonauts on board now, right this second, uh, who are doing work, uh, important scientific research. Uh, but uh, you know, one of one of the major projects that we're looking forward to is the James Webb uh, Space Telescope. You know, Webb is kind of considered the successor to Hubble, uh, which orbits Earth. But Webb is much larger. It uses much larger mirrors. It is going to go deeper into space. And it's going to see things. As much as Hubble changed the way that we looked at our universe, Webb is going to do the same thing from the Hubble imagery. And that's scheduled to launch in 2018. But, you know, the, the, the last of the mirrors were recently delivered. Uh, the spacecraft is being put together. Uh, it's, it's doing incredible work. And of course, one of the, the other things that we're really focused on that got started this past year is asteroid detection. You know, we just passed a year of, of the asteroid, the meteor that came in over Russia that everyone saw on all the dash cams. And it kind of highlighted the, the need to try to identify those, you know, because we live in a cosmic shooting gallery. You know, the, the Earth, you know, clears hundreds of tons of rocks through its orbit every year anyway. But we've got these things that could, you know, make us extinct. You know, so we've got the technology to go out there and, and try to identify them. Uh, we want to study them. We want to capture a piece of one and, and go out there and explore it with astronauts to learn more about them. And that's, that's a very exciting mission. Superb, Bob. Well, listen, I hope you've enjoyed chatting with us today. I've really enjoyed listening. We haven't even scratched the surface. We have to get you on for a part two at some stage, if you don't mind. Anytime. Say when. Excellent. Listen, take care. I'm chatting to Bob Jacobs on the Top Music Podcast. Mr. Bob Jacobs, I hope you are listening and I want you to know that it was an absolute pleasure for you to come on the Top Music Podcast. I learned a heck of a lot and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Now... I don't have any friends in high places at all. I'm sick of people that I speak to saying that their mums or their dads are pilots and they can get them in all these things. Well, I've got a friend now and his name is Bob Jacobs and, you know, maybe I'll get a free trip to the moon or maybe I can be the first guy that's on Mars. Bob, can you, you know, do us a favour and help sort that out? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Playing us out on the podcast, a young man called Daniel Scott, 17 years old, Dan, if you're listening, I know you are, I want you to listen to me. If you continue going the way you're going, and if you continue working as hard as you do, you're going to really do something with music, because you're so talented, okay? Daniel's track is a track called Breathe. I want you to go away and I want you to check this guy out. He's got a lot of potential. 
Top Music Podcast. My name's Scott Cowie. We'll see you next time. Check it out. Without a doubt, this house is draining me to feel free. Take my music to the beach A moment just to breathe Steady these thoughts I will, yeah I will, yeah Take a moment to breathe Take a moment to breathe, yeah Just give me my space, give me my space now I've got to have that peace of mind Like writing all my songs So I take my music to the beach A moment just to breathe Steady these thoughts I will, yeah I will, yeah Take a moment to breathe Take a moment to breathe, yeah Give me my space just give me my space now Take a moment to breathe. Take a moment to breathe.